The following is a message from Reverend Ken Belden of Wellsprings Congregation. So who's this? Ah, oh. and what does Dr. Phil say? That other thing that Dr. Phil says. Do you want to be? Wow, there's not a lot of people who watch like mid-afternoon television, clearly, which is probably a very good thing for all of us. <laughs> do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? My estimation of you all, which was pretty high to begin with, just went up about another 25%. <laughs> so Dr. Phil has a point to a point. <laughs> Uh, we can all, all of us, every person I've ever known get so fixated on wanting to prove our point, make our point, convey our point, convince others of our point, that we end up scattering misery seeds all around our feet and the feet of those who we care about. And yet, when I hear this question, as it's often interpreted, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? My response is, are those my only options? <laughs> I need more. I think we all need more. Right, unhappy, wrong, happy. Doesn't work. Not with depth. Because there's something in there that says we have to reject part of ourselves in order to be happy. And maybe that word, ha- word happiness has just been too diluted. Has just kind of signified too much of constant joy or constant feeling up that actually it can't encapsulate exactly what Josie said this morning. So maybe better words are fulfillment or flourishing or thriving. As we start this summer series, spirit flicks and finding spiritual messages within the movies, today's movie invites us to something deeper beyond just happy or right. It poses a question implicit within it. If we want to be fulfilled, we have to learn how to be whole. That's the heart of Moonlight. About cultivating the wholeness within us and recognizing how it is very often interactive with the connection between us and how the connections between us inhibit or give permission to cultivate that wholeness within us. Now, I'll be right up front. I love this movie about as much as I have ever loved a movie. And if you know me or have been around for a while, ten summers of this, you know I watch a lot of movies. <laughs> it is beyond, I think, just a film. It is a true work of art. And more than any other movie I've seen in my lifetime, truly did deserve to win the best Oscar. And yet, for all kinds of reasons, it truly was a wonderful surprise. Now, I'm going to try to do this briefly, this part. Moonlight is the story of this person at three ages. We know him as Little, and then his name, Chiron, and then we know him as Black. When we first meet Little, he is running away from bullies, scared that he is going to be beat up. There is something different about Little. He is withdrawn, quiet. 
He is saved from being beaten up by a drug dealer in the community in which he lives, which are the projects of Miami in an area of Miami called Liberty City. And this is not a movie that goes for easy, cheap moralism or easy answers. Because Juan, the drug dealer, takes on the role of parent at the same time that one of his lower level dealers is supplying the drugs through which Little's mother becomes addicted. Little lives most of his life hidden. He knows there's something different about him. One of the few times we see him really express himself is when he is in a dance studio. It appears there at the dance studio for some kind of uh, school field trip. And all the rest of the students leave and he's left by himself. And he starts dancing by himself. And we see for the first time his capacity for joy. There's a lovely scene in which Juan teaches Little to swim. Little who's never been in the water. Let's him know that he is both held and that he can be released into the water and swim for himself. And it is also Juan who, when Little's mother calls him the most common homophobic slur, you all know it, I'm not going to repeat it, that Little asks Juan what that means, and Juan tries to explain it in the least derogatory terms possible. And we see for the first time on Little's face, shame. That he does not want to be different. And then the movie flashes forward to Chiron, the teenager. It's amazing. All three of these people are different actors, and yet they give us a unified life. It is extraordinary. Chiron, who is even more as a teenager, more withdrawn, more sullen. He goes through a lot of his life with his head down, again, at risk for bullying. Not really connecting with anyone until one night with a friend of his, a friend named Kevin. They go out to the beach. They light up. And they share together Chiron's first ever sexual experience. It is tender and awkward, as teenage sexuality often is. And also very, very sweet. And so it makes what happens next even more tragic, that Kevin is goaded into fighting Chiron, who will not fight back, and beats him bloody because of the bullies in their school. And Chiron showing up at school the next day, dried blood on his face, does not go after Kevin, with whom he shared this intimate and tender moment, and now feels such distant from. Chiron goes after the bullies who goaded him into beating Chiron. Beats him brutally, knocks him unconscious, and is arrested and goes to jail. And then flash forward, and we meet Black. Chiron, who is now big and buff and hard and has spent time in prison, is probably the kind of person that... People now say in code thug when they actually mean a different word. And you get a sense that Chiron Black is performing his masculinity. That it's become a shell through which he hides. 
He is now a drug dealer. Just as isolated, just as alone, just as set apart from other people. His mom is now in recovery, and his mom asks to see him. And you get the sense for the first time his mom is really trying to get through to him, apologizing for what she missed in raising him. And then Black gets a call from Kevin, out of the blue, years later, and goes to see him. I'll return to that later. Moonlight is a life told over time and through time, and its artistry is rendered in the fact that it tells its story as much in the gaps and what we don't see, as much as is conveyed to us through words. It uses images and music and silence, and it is gorgeous. And it hints at this thing, this thing that so many of us struggle with, this thing that psychologists and people who teach spirituality have talked about, the shadow. The shadow which isn't evil or rotten. The shadow which is really just the rejected parts of ourselves, the parts of ourselves we don't want to face, the parts of ourselves we put in the corner. And too often the shadow is conveyed as sunlight versus shadow. That one's over here and one's over there. But the title of this movie gives a deeper invitation. Moonlight contains both light and shadow at the same time. That's the integration that Chiron is invited into. It's not sunlight versus shadow. It's not light versus darkness. The moonlight is more subtle as we are all more subtle. The shadow is never not us. The shadow is healed by reclaiming what's rejected. Bless you. This is how all of us grow a soul which is just another word for wholeness. In my own life, I have experienced this work as something that I call the inner universalism. (laughs) The universalist part of our tradition says there's a love so special that none of us need to be special to be loved. And yet, how often don't we practice universalism within ourselves? Splitting off the parts of ourselves we don't like, not want to face. And yet this inner universalism is a kind of psychological, spiritual invitation in which we reclaim all the parts of ourselves that we have rejected and we say because it is our experience, it belongs. And through this process, we are invited home once again rather than banishing to the outer darkness the things we don't like about ourselves or don't approve of. This is the work of a lifetime and perhaps if you believe some other traditions, the work of lifetimes. I'm open to both. (laughs) And so it might sound odd for me to say right now something that I absolutely do believe in my heart. That as a person in long-term recovery, I have learned to love, not in a sentimental way, but in a deeply compassionate way, my own alcoholism. Please hear me. That's very distinct from loving how I acted when I was an active alcoholic. (laughs) That's a different thing. My alcoholism, when it was active, was unwise and unskillful and at times harmful to myself and others. And yet this is one of the blessings of how I have experienced long-term recovery, is that I can see what the alcoholism was trying to do. It was trying to protect me, not wisely, 
from all the things I didn't want to face about myself. The anxiety and the vulnerability and the constant fear and the sense of inadequacy. So compassionately, I've learned to love it. Because in loving it, this is the recovery. And recognizing that the first fear I ever had of being wounded is what ended up wounding me and other people. This is the paradox of compassion and the inner universalism, which is that if we can fully acknowledge the shadow of our lives and what lies there, that compassion is also the key to release from what bedevils us. We talk about in our core values here at Wellsprings, I've got to be honest, my favorite one, living a life with integrity and how it is humility and listening with vulnerability that allows us into the pathways of the inner universalism. And by the way, it's not just about the things we don't like about ourselves that the inner universalism allows us to do, that allows us to come home. It's also with our high points as well, too. <laughs> not just our shadow, but with our brightest light. We need the inner universalism just as much for that. And some of you know I'm in a Master of Social Work program, and my first year that I'm doing part-time just ended. And other than one week and a couple weeks from now, I'm going to be away from Wellsprings on study leave when I'm doing an intensive all week long. I'm on summer break. Woohoo! <laughs> Party. Uh, <laughs> We're down to one service. It's like I'm on vacation all summer. No, no, I'm not. <laughs> but I do have space for other things. And so one of those things I have space for is reading the Harry Potter books. I read the first one last uh, uh, summer, and I intentionally didn't go on to the second one until this summer. That's the Chamber of Secrets. I just started, I think it's called. And I know how it ends. I've seen most of the movies. <laughs> I've preached on them here for spirit flicks. And so for me, as much as I understand, the most important thing in all of the Harry Potter books is the epilogue. This moment. A couple slides forward. Harry and Hermione and Ron, just as average middle-aged parents... <laughs> Well, as average when you send your kids to Hogwarts as you can be. <laughs> you see, so often when we tell stories of the famous and of the heroic, we don't hear what happens next. They just save the day. But man, to come down off that high, that could be depressing. I mean, Ron and Hermione and Harry, they could have been the equivalent in the wizarding world of the quarterbacks who peaked in high school <laughs> and never had a life afterward that measured up. That's why this is the most important scene in all of the books. Because they recognize this wisdom that very often for many of us, the worst demons we know are the angels that we could not let go. They're able to survive and thrive even beyond their heroism and just be average, ordinary people integrating their experience. Which, by the way, of course, is what Voldemort could not do. In his hatred 
in his shame of death, of impermanence, of change. He hated these things in himself. And what did he do by treating them as shameful? He externalized his shadow, his anger, his evil onto the world and sought to destroy it. This is what happens for those of us who cannot practice the inner universalism making space for our experience. All of it. There's a writer named Rebecca Solnit who some of you might know, it's been going around this past week on social media. She wrote, especially about powerful people who will not allow themselves to admit the fullness of their experience and instead externalize onto others all the shame, the anger, the blame, getting rid of those people and will be okay. These are her words, and I think they are some of the most psychologically acute and insightful words I've read in a long time. She wrote about the Voldemorts and the tyrants These words, some use their power to silence their inner conversation of their own different experiences and to silence the outer dialogue with others and live in the void of their own increasingly deteriorating off course sense of self and meaning. It's like going mad on a desert island only with sycophants and room service. It's like having a compliant compass that agrees that north is wherever you want it to be. The tyrant of a family, the tyrant of a little business owner, the tyrant of a huge enterprise, the tyrant of a nation. Power corrupts and absolute power often corrupts the awareness of those who possess it. The deep work. We gain awareness of ourselves and others from setbacks and difficulties. We get used to a world that is not always about us. And those who do not have that capacity to cope are brittle and weak and unable to endure contradiction. I love that the opposite of that comes right from Walt Whitman who gave us our mission here at Wellsprings. Do I contradict myself? Very well, then I contradict myself. I am large. That's the paradox of the little universalism of the universe within us. If we can do that, we will find that we are large and spacious and can contain exactly as Walt Whitman said, multitudes. We don't have to engage in the emotional dogma of thinking that we can only be one thing and anything that threatens that image of who we are threatens ourselves. And so we have to blame someone else. Instead, we can practice that for ourselves. And yes, it is a practice. (laughs) For everyone I've ever met. It is certainly a practice for me. There's a wonderful writer, a Zen teacher named Jan Chozen Bays, who talks about dealing with this inner critic, the inner critic, which at its harshest level wants to either eliminate all the things we don't like about ourselves or obsess over and over and over again about the things we don't like about ourselves. And she says, no, if we can come back and take that one seat over and over and over again with that compassionate noticing, that sitting practice in which there is no comparison between ourselves against ourselves, between ourselves and another person. And we don't have to get caught in living out the past over and over again. We don't have to get caught in projecting ourselves into the future over and over again. We can experience, and I know it, my friends, I know it in my heart, a huge field of calm, large awareness in which everything is just as it is interconnected with every other piece of what is whole. We're not separate. My experience of this is that awareness is a balloon that expands on all sides. (laughs) The light and the shadow, the joy and the sadness, all of it, all of us. 
And this is where the little universalism, the personal universalism, is connected to the big universalism, the universalism of our tradition and the fact that they actually need each other to be whole. Because when I say universalism, I'm not talking about universalism as sameness. Again, it's that emotional dogma that says everything has to be the same for everything to be all right and for us to get along. That is not correct. I would be lying, and I don't want to lie, to say that moonlight is the same as me. I didn't grow up poor. I didn't grow up black. I didn't grow up gay. And that's why the difference of this story calls to me. Because it is all about that outer, the bigger universalism that makes space for experience that is different than mine, especially recognizing that my own identity partakes of so many of the dominant trends and parts of identity that constitute this world. The truth is, we don't see, most often we don't see, teens of color, black boys, having their first non-exploitative, awkward, tender sexual experience with one another. And it's not played for laughs or derision, but it is played to reveal the depths of our human hearts. Moonlight is not centered on my life, and I don't need it to be. And that's why I was so incredibly pissed off when they first announced that la, 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 la land. Now, here's the thing. I love musicals. I grew up with musicals. La, la, land is a musical where I cannot remember a single song of the musical. It's not a good musical. But there's a deeper reason why I'm so glad that was corrected. Because la, la, land is a story we know all too well. It's a story so tired and so old. Oh, wow. How meaningful. I get to hear another story of a famous person who had to talk about all the sacrifices they had to make in order to be famous. (laughs) That's what that story's about. And I'm not saying it's not real for some people. I'm saying it's not a healing story anymore. It's a cliche. Moonlight is a better story. It's the story that I think our world needs right now more than any other. It's the story of people who have to learn to love themselves in order to become whole, famous or not. And actually, it's our power or our fame that gets in the way of that wholeness. And so when I saw Moonlight, what I felt more than anything else is this is the fulfillment of universalist hope. That there is more space for all of us. And none of us are diminished by centering stories that are different from our own. Within Moonlight, there is a movement against the logic of dominance and domination and competition and subjugation and all those myths of the fact that for there to be winners, there have to be losers that rules our lives and creates cruel systems. Moonlight points in the direction that the Pope talked about. And that surprising TED talk that he did a couple months back when he called for a revolution of tenderness. Moonlight is one of the scriptures of the revolution of tenderness. Because if we can truly listen and see and hear and come to terms with our own light and shadow and to see it in others as well too, then we will recognize that social recovery and soul recovery are the same work. We split them for far too long. 
they're not separate at all. They absolutely need each other if we are going to be more whole. In the same way that this story from an ancient rabbi asked a question, asked his students a long time ago, tell me, tell me about the moment when you can tell that dawn is breaking. One of the students said, it's the moment when I can tell the difference between a sheep and a dog. No. (laughs) Another student piped up. It is when you can tell the difference between a fig tree and an olive tree. No. And they had no other answers and they were quiet. And the rabbi said, you can tell that the dawn is breaking when you can look into the eyes of another person and see both them and yourself. That is when the dawn is breaking. Right now in our lives, we are witnessing, I would say many of us are exhausted by the dead end of harshness and bullying and boasting and egocentric behavior. It is so freaking depleting. That is why the universalism within us and the universalism between us saves us. Not by making us flawless. Never flawless. (laughs) That's one of the first big lies. But by allowing us to be whole. To allow more light, more heart, more shadow, more love into our lives. And in that last section, that's of the story, that's what Moonlight points at. When Kevin has apologized for what happened years ago to Chiron. And even pushes at this identity, this mask of masculinity that he has constructed for himself. And Chiron is able to admit You are the only man who has ever touched me. Only one. And he pauses. And hear the loneliness in these words. I haven't touched anyone since. And then the movie ends with the most beautiful, least sentimental, most soulful embrace that I have ever seen. This man who had to be hard to survive, practicing the inner universalism for the first time, and from that space allowing himself to be embraced and to embrace. This is why Dr. Phil so doesn't get it. (laughs) Because there is something far, far out on the furthest edge of right or happy Reconciliation, love. When we touch this, we touch the realm of God, heaven on earth. (laughs) Maybe it's the words we just sang. We touch the fact that everything is holy now. Your light and shadow, my light and shadow, the world's light and shadow. May we all practice the inner universalism, making space, falling more deeply love in this life where everything is holy now. Amen. May you live in blessing. Would you pray with me? In the beginning, O Spirit, there was space. Space for it all. And then identity took on forms and faces and nothing wrong or evil in this. 
But when those forms and those faces become barriers and walls, we come to believe the myth that separation is the truth of who we are. And so we will allow ourselves to follow that call back to the original space that was, which is the space that has never left us, and claim that space and know that space and live in that space in which a universe is contained within a single human heart, in which the universe is contained by the sum of all the parts of who we are, individual and together. May we practice that loving space, become that loving space, allow that loving space, give permission to that loving space. Amen. If you enjoyed this message and would like to support the mission of Wellsprings, go to our website, wellspringsuu.org. That's Wellsprings, the letters UU dot O-R-G.